2 Thessalonians chapter 2, reading verses 1 to 12. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Hear the word of God. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of the Lord had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. As the grass fades, and the, sorry, as the flower fades and the grass withers, the word of the Lord alone endures forever. May God bring his blessing. Well, we uh, have spent the month of December, the last uh, four weeks, considering uh, the Lord's first advent and in relation to that, looking forward to his second advent. And uh, here at the last uh, Sunday of the year and the the last day of the year, uh, we are returning to 2 Thessalonians and picking up where we left off, returning to a letter that is predominantly about the return of the Lord Jesus, his second coming that we are looking forward to, or at least I hope in your hearts you are looking forward to that coming of the Lord. You know, for 2,000 years, the church has been anticipating the return of Jesus. That sort of puts things in perspective when we find it difficult to wait even a year for some great event to unfold in our lives or in our homes. 2,000 years. And the prospect of looking forward to that day of the Lord, I think, is even more burdened today than it was in Paul's day. But it was burdened in Paul's day with false teaching with scoffers who mock the idea that it is coming, with even, as Paul writes here in in verse 2, 
with uh, others who pretended to be speaking on behalf of Paul or behalf of God and bringing confusion and ignorance. Even in the first letter, we saw people had anxiety and doubts and wrong focuses about the Lord's return. I grew up in a a Baptistic uh, denomination and church that had a lot of what we call dispensational theology. And I always use that word, and some of you, if you don't know what that word means, thank God. (laughs) Because it's a very confusing understanding of what's going to happen when the Lord comes. And when you unravel it, you see there's at least two, if not three, and sometimes four different resurrections happening, three different returns of the Lord, beginning with the rapture of the church, all of that All of that confusion comes in and brings a whole lot of doubt, wrong focuses, and anxieties. In some ways, we're a little worse off because we've got 2,000 years of waiting that just makes people think, when when is it going to happen? Did we get something wrong? Maybe we should start rethinking what God's Word says on it. And that's how dispensationalism came out in the mid-1800s. Let's learn to rightly divide God's Word. Let's divide it into time periods and see how God has broken up the history of the world. The prospect of looking forward to that day of the Lord is often a a confused one. And what Paul is talking about here uh, is not so much direct events or dates or even names of people that will help us to be ready and to know that that is going to be happening soon. In the inspiration of the Spirit, he reminds us that the coming of the day of the Lord is not something that should cause anxiety. It should not shake your faith. Yet it does. And it was doing that in their day. I think, as time has come along, I think we need to be guarded that the coming of the day of the Lord isn't being treated with mediocrity. (laughs) Oh, well, you said it was coming. It hasn't happened yet. We've heard it now and heard it now. Uh, It's just not that important in our lives. So let's just get on with living. Have you ever heard Christians speak like that? I have. And maybe they don't necessarily speak that sort of attitude with words, but we do speak that attitude in our lives. We live as though the day of the Lord is unimportant. But as we go through this letter, one of the things, and I'm bringing our minds back to this so that we're thinking properly, The day of the Lord and setting our focus on that is purposed for at least these three things. It's purposed to encourage you in the face of persecution. If you've never experienced persecution for your faith, even in the small measures of mockery, then perhaps you're not living out your faith as you should be. But when persecution comes, and it will come, because Paul has written in 2 Timothy 3 that all who want to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. The day of the Lord is purposed to encourage you in that. 
It's also purposed to assure you in times of hardship, tribulation, affliction, all of those things that affect our lives. Life is hard. Young people, don't let anyone tell you it isn't. Don't let anyone tell you that if you just follow your dreams, things will come well for you. It won't. That's a lie. Life is hard. Why? Because we're sinners. And and we live in a sinful world. And because the heart of man is such that it thinks about itself only. And if you have power, and if you have money, you can oppress others. And, And that's a reality. Not only that, because we are sinful and live in a fallen world, health issues abound. And you can be going along fine. And then you have that doctor's visit because of a pain. And you find out that your body's full of cancer. And you're going to die. Life is hard. <laughs> but the day of the Lord is coming. And, and our hope and our joy is knowing that in that day, we will be made like Jesus. <laughs> and we will be with our God forever. And we will see that our life lived here on earth was but a passing breath. Because we're with our God for eternity. And and with that, the day of the Lord is also purposed, thirdly, to bring comfort in the grief of death. And Some of you are closer to this where you live in the lower Ottawa area. And I sent this out in the email yesterday. Didn't you have tears in your eyes when you read about those two young kings? I had tears in my eyes when I saw the picture of that family of three from Edmonton. It was, it was just, wow. I don't know anything about their families. In that. What did Paul say in 1 Thessalonians 4? You know what comforts our hearts as God's people when we go through those tragedies or we experience the issues of death? What is our comfort? I don't know Heidelberg Catechism well enough to quote it in its entirety. But I know this much. That in body and soul, I belong to my faithful Lord and Savior. When we think on the day of the Lord, we know then shall death be swallowed up in sweet victory of resurrection and eternal life. You see, the day of the Lord is not something that we just hold out there like a date on a calendar that we are not concerned, and and I think I can speak for most of us, we're like this, that when we're ready to go on that trip that we've been planning for a full year, we start packing the day before we leave. How many of us do that? And then we're rushing and trying to think, "Did, did we forget something? And it's not until we get to our destination that we look in our suitcases and realize what we forgot. The day of the Lord is not supposed to be treated like that. It's something that is to be part of our thinking daily. It's part of pursuing the kingdom of God. It's part of our prayers. Thy kingdom come. It is the earnest expectation of creation. And do you know in Romans 8.19 when When Paul writes those words, the day of the Lord is the earnest expectation of creation. 
What he's saying is that all of creation, everything else of creation, the angels that God created for his glory, all of the creatures God created for his glory, all of the universe that God created for his glory, they are earnestly expecting that glorious day because then the revelation of Christ's bride will be unfolded in its fullness. Isn't that exciting? Like the day of a wedding, where we're all wondering, what's the bride going to look like? And rarely do we think about the grooms. <laughs> Why? Because the groom is there waiting for the bride to come down the aisle. Because all the beauty is there. <laughs> and creation is looking for that day. Is your heart looking for that? We heard from 2 Peter chapter 3 already that we are called to be a people who in all holiness and godliness are looking for and hastening the coming of the Lord. Are you doing that? You wake up, even on this, the Lord's Day. Which again, just, just put this thought out there. This is the closest to heaven we're getting. This side of glory. Right now. Because where is your soul? Where is your spirit right now? You might think we're in this echoey gymnasium. The spirit of God has come and lifted us up into those heavenly places and is seating us with that heavenly company right now where we are worshiping God with the hosts of heaven. And we're called to be a people in all holiness and godliness, not only looking for that coming of the Lord, but hastening it. In our prayers, in our lives, in the proclamation of the gospel, in our presentation of Christ to the world. And the question comes again, are you? Are you looking forward? Hastening. We've already heard, but I want to remind you again from verse 3, that there are two major signs of Christ's return that we know it is not yet going to be today, tomorrow. There is first the sign of a great apostasy, a great falling away. That day will not come lest the falling away comes first. And when you read other passages of Scripture, Jude, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 4, you will see that, that what is in focus here is a, a global scale of apostasy. That's not happening yet. In other places within the world, people are coming to the Lord. The church is increasing. But the second major sign, you see it there in verse 3, is the man of sin is to be revealed. That son of perdition. That there is one who is going to come as a counterfeit Christ and do a work of evil in the world like no other. And before we look at that, that man of lawlessness, I want you to... To have this in mind so you are not thinking, well, the Lord could come tonight. Well, the, the coming of the Lord is impending. It's before us. But there is still a life that we are to live 
for God's glory as we wait for that day. And the revealing of the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, is yet to happen. So we're not to be holding ourselves up as a church. We're not to be building our own communes and shutting out the world. We're not to be selling all that we have and right going up a mountain and, and waiting for days for something to happen. <laughs> you know, we're laughing and, 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 and I laugh when I read of those. But the, the number of times that's happened within the last 40 years, it, it would scare you. John in 1 John 2 says this, that little children, it is the last hour. Yes, we're in the last hour. You know how long that hour was for Jesus when he started his ministry? For him it was three years. But in his deity, it was from eternity. The fullness of time he was born. His hour hadn't come, but when his hour came, he was ready. Little children, it is the last hour. The Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come, by which we know it is the last hour. What we see now are many little men of lawlessness, many small a Antichrists at work. The man of lawlessness is to appear before the coming of the Lord. Now what are we supposed to know about this man of lawlessness? Let's just think on him first here in verses 4 to 8. I know for many, over the years again of Christianity, the focus has been wrong. We want to know who he is before we actually know who he is. We want to know him. And in the past, within the church, Nero... Nero's often been thought that. Because if you do something wonderful with his name in the Greek language, his name comes out to the number 666. So he must be the Antichrist. That was the idea of some. God isn't working like that. He is an Antichrist, but not the man of lawlessness. Some have thought it was Domitian at the end of the first century in into the second century, some of the Caesars of Rome brought a persecution on the church that was so weighty and heavy. Reformers during the Reformation time thought it was the papacy. It may be, but I don't think it is. But there have been many antichrists. Hitler, Stalin, Mao. And I only picked them because of the mass mass amounts of people who die under their regimes. Because that's the goal of the Antichrist, is to bring death and carnage against God. But here, here, God assigns him two titles. Here in verse, uh, verse 3. He's the man of lawlessness, or uh, the man of sin, as it says in the New King James. I have no problem with those versions who have it there as the man of lawlessness is revealed. Because if you go to 1 John 3, what does it say about sin? All sin is lawlessness. So call it what it is. But it, it speaks. By his title, he is known. A man 
who lives outside the law of God, who contradicts the law of God in everything, who hates God. But he's also the son of perdition, the son of destruction. He is one who represents the heart that is so depraved in its relation to God that everything is about death. And what you, what you see in verse 4 is how he operates. His method of operation. A very militant character. He opposes and he exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. He sits as God in the temple of God. Tries to show himself that he is God. The militant character of this man is what's presented. Rejecting all authority but his own. Sometimes that sounds like the type of culture we live in today. The anarchy that reigns. I saw this news video of how many... It was a news video that was showing how how shoplifting has turned in the U.S. that when I was a floor walker and catching those who would try to steal from the store, you'd always see them. They were, they were always secretive. They tried to hide what they were doing and they tried to make what they were stealing as small as possible so they could conceal it in their coats or they would put things over it. They were doing everything to try to get out of the store with, with product that was hidden on their body or hidden in other things. You know what today they do? They fill up a shopping cart and they wheel it right out the doors. And most of the employees and even the security that are there to protect the store just take out their phones and they videotape this person walking out with all this stuff. They don't even try to stop them. We, we live in a very anti-law, anti-authoritarian age. This is a character who comes and rejects all authority but his own. But he goes even further. It's not just what's happening in the civil sphere. It's also what's happening in in relation to God. He exalts himself as God. He suppresses all other religion and worship. And again, we have so much of that today. With people who more and more treat any kind of religion as the reason why we have so many wars in the world. (laughs) How many of you have heard that? People despise religion altogether. They don't realize that in doing so they create a religion of one (laughs) themselves. But that's what's coming. And again, for most of us who are wondering, who's he going to be? God doesn't lead us there. Where does God lead us in this understanding of what the day of the Lord and and preparing for that day of the Lord is to be for us? He goes on here to remind us, and, and Paul's very emphatic, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? See, even in his day, when they have the knowledge of what God has set in plan, their focus goes to the stuff that we're not supposed to know. And they create confusion. Did Christ already come? Uh, how do we know we're close to the day of the Lord? We're not told any of that. But what we are told 
is that the revelation of this man of lawlessness is delayed, and it is delayed by God. Now that should excite us. It should encourage us. God is telling us that it's not yet his time to be revealed. Very interesting, if you look at verse 3, verse 6, and verse 8, that word reveal there is the very same word that's used to speak of revelation and the revelation of Jesus Christ, the apocalypse. That's the Greek word. The apocalyptic time of this man is delayed. And why should that encourage us? Because it is reminding us that God is controlling the time of his revelation. Why hasn't he been revealed yet? Because there's a restraint at work. And and we're not told here, it's unfortunate that the New King James capitalizes the word he twice in verse 7. Because it's not a pronoun that needs to be capitalized. We don't know if it is a person that is restraining or if it is impersonal, which I lean toward. It's probably both. But what is restraining the revelation of this man? It's the ministry of the gospel. (laughs) The fullness of God's kingdom has not come in yet. (laughs) And, And so God is restraining the revelation of that man of lawlessness so the church can go and do the work of the gospel in the world. Now do we think on that line? Because the Lord has not yet returned, what does that say to you every day? Today is a gospel day. Today is a day of sharing the testimony of Jesus Christ to the world. Today is still a day, as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 6. Today is that acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. Do we understand that? There is restraint at work because God is still saving people from their sins. Praise God. That, that, that brings joy to our hearts. Now, even, even now, and Paul is not, is not blind to this fact, even now lawlessness is, is happening. The mystery of lawlessness, verse 7, is already at work. We see men who have risen up within history who have behaved like that one man of lawlessness that is yet to come. You look at the Tower of Babel and what was that all about? A man who rose up and said, let's build a tower which will be our heaven and we'll cast off God and His authority and we will be our own people. God said, Not in my history. (laughs) And he brought about that confusion of tongues. You get it when you read Daniel. You see it twice there. Others who have risen up and strive to be this man, Nebuchadnezzar, and that big idol he made of himself, that statue of gold. And what did he say to all the other religions within his empire? You all must now come and bow down and 
worship this symbol of my glory. And if you don't, I'm throwing you in a fiery furnace. You know the story of Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael. And Daniel experienced the same with Darius. 30 days, no one can pray except to me. And you had it in the time of the early church. We, we're, we're not near some of those harder times of persecution, at least not here in the West. Have we ever had a sword held to our neck and saying, you must say, Caesar is Lord. How many Christians died in a moment because they would say, no, Jesus is Lord. Christ is Lord. And what he's saying here, just so we're aware, is that there's going to be this hour where one last effort on a global scale is before us. That man of lawlessness will come and do a work beyond any scope of what we have seen in history. A Christian, don't fear that. Don't let it trouble you. Isn't that what he says here? I don't want you, verse 2, to be soon shaken in mind or troubled. Why? Because as he says here, that man of lawlessness, his time is going to be brief. When he is revealed, the Lord will come and consume him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him with the brightness of his coming. In God's eyes, this man is already judged and dead. It's not something we should fear. And regardless of who it is and when he comes, what is certain for the church is to know his time will be brief and will be met with the all-consuming wrath and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns. Why do I say this? Why do I... Why do I bring this to your attention? How many of you, and I'll raise my hand here among us, have said in the past couple years, I don't know how much worse it has to get before the Lord returns. How many of you have looked at Canada, just take our nation, and thought, we are so evil, it's a wonder God doesn't come down and destroy us like Sodom and Gomorrah. The reason he hasn't is because we're not as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. Doesn't that scare you? <laughs> we're not as bad as before the days of Noah. Doesn't that frighten you? But we think about the evil in our time. And we think there's been nothing like this in all of the history of the world. Surely he's coming. And oftentimes when we go down that way of, of looking at and, and trying to understand the increase of sin and lawlessness... What happens is it makes the church, it makes Christians dejected, reclusive, fearful. It takes us down wrong roads. And what the Lord is telling us here with these words is, yes, that day is coming. But dear Church of Christ, dear believer in the Lord, it's not purpose to make you afraid, but to make you prayerful. To make you expectant. To make you diligent with the gospel. Look at the people who are lost and dead. Let your heart be moved more for them than it is moved by the evil that surrounds us. 
Isn't that a hard focus to gain? Why is that important for us to have our minds turned in that direction of prayerful, expectant diligence with the gospel? Because where our heart is, is where our actions will take us. We will behave in accordance to how we are thinking. God wants us to understand that this is his plan. You see it unfolding here in a way that, for us, it's, it's mysterious. He even talks about that. Verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness. Why isn't God doing something? Why is God, as I sent that out in the email, why is God allowing those Islamic militants in Nigeria to kill his people in such measure? Why doesn't God do something? The truth is he has. He has done something. He has sent his son. He has brought forth through one of the greatest, not one of, the greatest evil ever, ever perpetuated by mankind. The death of his son. Salvation. The gospel that goes to the whole of the earth to bring his saving mercies to all of his people. God is at work. God is saving his people from their sins. Christ is building his church. He is enthroned in heaven, exercising a kingship that is beyond our meager comprehension of the will and understanding of God in his thoughts. What he wants you to know is that this is all under his authority. (laughs) This is his plan and purposes being affected. God, as we see here, is the one who sends a strong delusion so that those who are of the kingdom of unrighteousness will be judged in their unrighteousness. Those who are of the kingdom of righteousness will be brought to salvation. Now, Satan's purpose, if you read verses 9 to 11, Satan's purpose is, is unfolded for us here. He's at work to blind and to hold in enslavement unto death all whom he can. And he has been given by God power to that end. But if you read here very closely, it's only power to those who are perishing. Look at verse 10. All unrighteous deception among those who perish. Why do they perish? The the wording is so so clear. They perished because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Do you see that there? What's he saying? That those who are dying, this death, this eternal death, are those who did not receive grace to be saved. The man of lawlessness and Satan with all of his purposes 
cannot keep a single soul out of God's kingdom whom he has given to Jesus Christ. And the church can take confidence in that truth. That the power of evil that is being exercised is really a power over those who are perishing, not those whom the Lord has given to His Son. God's sovereignty is at work. God is allowing these who are reprobate, who are sons of perdition, He's allowing them to believe the lie. Did you see that there in verse 11? For this reason, God sends strong delusion. That they should believe not a lie, but the lie. What's the lie? It's the lie of the garden. It's the lie of Satan. It's the lie that says and contradicts God. It's the lie that says you can be your own God. It's the lie that says you will not die. God is sending this delusion. (laughs) Sometimes it's frightening to think that this is who God is. But always understand that God's justice against these who are perishing is still true justice. They are not condemned because they didn't hear about Christ. No one is condemned because they didn't hear about Christ. That's a wrong thought of Christians. They are condemned because they have sinned against God. (laughs) And because they have a heart of depravity that suppresses God's truth in unrighteousness. No one is in hell that doesn't deserve to be there. And no one is in heaven who deserves to be there. And as God helps us to understand what is going to occur before the coming of the day of the Lord, its purpose to us again is both to humble us in understanding what grace has saved a wretch like me. Who am I? Who are you? That God should reveal in your heart a love for truth. Who are you? You are a wretched sinner who deserves death. That's all you are. But in grace, God has planted that seed of His grace in your heart. That that seed of His undeserved Mercy, kindness, and love. A grace that in the power of the Spirit has brought you to believe in Christ. Where you can cry out to Him, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Where God has said, yes, I will. Because all who call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. My friends, that's that's Grace. It's the love of God to an unworthy sinner. And in humbling us to this truth, it it, it is purpose to spur up in our souls that greater 
zeal for God's kingdom. We know Christ is coming. We know he is coming too, as we heard, to bring about that great renewal of all of creation where the presence of sin is removed. We know he is coming to bring about a great renewal of our own body and soul where the presence of sin and death are removed. We know these things. How does that knowledge translate in your life to service for God's kingdom? It should spur us on knowing what the day of the Lord is going to be like for God's people and knowing what the day of the Lord is going to be like for the reprobate. Its purpose is to spur us on to that kingdom service, bringing witness of Christ to the world. Does that describe us? A people humbled in God's grace, a people seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. My friends, as we close this message and as we close this morning worship, where are you in relation to God? Where are you in relation to Jesus? You know you're dying. You know you're sinners. We all know these things. What have you done with that knowledge? And this morning you, you've heard that there's a day that is coming. What do you do with that knowledge? Look to the Lord. Look to Christ for salvation. Look to Christ for redemption. Also look to God for his kingdom. Be a servant. Let's pray.